Uh, hey, good morning. You guys may be seated. If you don't know me, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. It is such a blessing and a privilege to be here. I know that over the summer, we're kind of in the odd position as a church where it's not uncommon for churches to actually go to, to get smaller during the summer. We actually get bigger because so many people come from out of town. We have this incredible blessing. Thank you, guys. We have this incredible blessing to get to utilize church in the park all during the summer. And so I want to say thank you to the city for allowing us year after year. I think this is our 27th year, 28th year, something like that. That's pretty remarkable. And, and here's why this matters is that, I mean, I want you to think about this for a moment. We get to do this because the city believes in the right for us to get to worship publicly, but also they've blessed us with the privilege to be here. And so I hope that you all realize what an incredible gift this really is that we get to do this. I also want to take a moment and thank you, the, thank the Lions Club. Uh, they've come here year after year. Thank you for your service and loving our city and providing the barbecue. And, and I know here's the thing, you're all going to be distracted by the smell of chicken. But I think that's proof that God is good because chicken smells so good when you cook it. Amen. And so we praise the Lord for that. And I'm, real quickly, because I don't want to forget at the end, I'm going to pray over the meal now. For those of you who are sticking around, please support the Lions Club and what they're doing. Uh, and so I'm just going to pray over the food so I don't forget at the end. Lord, thank you for the Lions Club. I pray a blessing on every person uh, that helps serve in this. God, bless them with the resources and the things that they're doing. And Lord, we come and we thank you for this wonderful meal. Uh, so thank you, Lord. Thank you for all that you've done and all the ways you blessed us. Bless this meal. Bless this time. And now, as we fix our eyes on you, Jesus... Help us to pay attention to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Um, one of my convictions, and you may not know this, one of my convictions about preaching and teaching comes down to this simple truth. It matters. What happens here on a Sunday morning throughout the world, not just at Zion, but through churches all over the world that are meeting Preaching matters. Teaching matters. It is not just an inspirational talk because we believe that the Holy Spirit does something when the Word of God is preached. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If I say something, you may not be all comfortable with this, but if you're comfortable, if you agree with something, just do an amen, a thank you, Jesus, whatever. But here's what I want you to hear. The reason why this matters is because God's Word makes a promise to us. Our whole summer series has been all about the promises of God. A series called You've Already Got It. The Old Testament Jewish prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 11, tells us this, that God's word never returns void. Which means that every time the word of God is spoken or read, the Holy Spirit does something in it. Now, you have to allow it to work in you. You have to be open to what God has for you in it. But God's word gives us a promise. The apostle Paul, 500 years later, wrote this to the Christians in the church in Rome, Romans 10. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message and the message is heard through the word about Jesus. We believe that the Bible matters. We believe that understanding God's word matters. Therefore, preaching and teaching matters. Now, I, I want to be clear. Sometimes as Christians, 
We elevate the Bible to be higher than God intended it to be. And let me explain before you think I'm a heretic here. The Bible is not the missing fourth part of the Trinity. It is not Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. But the Bible is God's Word, inspired by the Holy Spirit, written through human beings, that reveals who God is. Too many Christians elevate the Bible as if the goal is to have a relationship with the Bible. No, our goal is to have a relationship with God who reveals himself through the Bible. Does that make sense? Everybody tracking with me? If so, say amen. Okay. Now, here's what I want you to understand, and this is going to set us up for our, really our challenge and the promise this morning. We believe that the Bible is a collection of books that have been gathered together that were written by human hands inspired by the Holy Spirit, written over roughly 1,600 years by different people and languages, different places and situations, different genres. There's history, poetry, there are love songs, there's sonnets, laments, there's wisdom, there's even laws and prophets and history. There are so many things that go on in the Bible. It is not just a flat book. It is a collection of books written in specific ways for specific reasons. And yet, what makes this collection of books different, so incredible compared to any other book in history, is we believe it is God-breathed. That the Holy Spirit breathed into the authors of the Bible so that the words that they wrote were the very words God intended through their situations. Now, here's why this matters. This book has convicted, challenged, and changed how we see God how we see the world and how we see ourselves if we read it right. The words of the Bible have shaped and formed God's people, not for just a few centuries, but for almost 3,000 years, the pages, the words of Scripture have formed a people. And while the Bible was not written to you and me, after all, last time I checked, None of us are first century Jews or Christians. None of us have wandered in the desert for 40 years or were enslaved to, to Pharaoh in Egypt. While the Bible was not written to you and me, it was certainly written for you and me. Now here's why I'm sharing this. If we are honest with ourselves, if I'm honest with myself, when I read the Bible, it's one of those things that the Bible challenges us to put our hope and trust and faith in God. The God who reveals himself through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and this doesn't mean it's always easy. How many of you have ever read the Bible and went, I'm more confused now more than ever? If you've ever had that, raise your hand. I've read the, there are times that I read the Bible and I don't, I'm like, I don't get it, God. I don't understand. And yet this is the same God and all the messiness of Scripture who challenges me and you to trust him. And yet, I believe if most of us, including me and you, are honest, it's easy to dismiss parts of the Bible as relevant for our lives, whether you're conservative or liberal, Republican, Democrat, or independent, whether you're a man or a woman. There are things that when we read it, we will often pick and choose and say, well, I don't know if this applies to me. Now, that being said, there are certain things that I want to tell you don't apply to you. They, they apply to the Jews, particularly the laws of the Old Testament. But we read the parts of the Bible that seem to be about promises for everybody. And 
I often struggle with trusting God on some of the most fundamental truths and promises He gives to His people. And this is where we're going to talk about this morning. This morning, we're going to talk about God's promise of rest. R-E-S-T. Everybody say rest. See, over the last several weeks, we've been discovering just a few of the many promises and blessings that God has made and given to you if you are a Christian. If you're not a Christian, God's promises are not for you. And that should give you a pause because we're so quick to want to proclaim all God's promises because after all, we're all God's children. Actually, no, we're all made in the image of God. Only those whose faith are in Jesus are adopted into the family of Christ. Being in the image of God does not mean you are part of the family of God. That's why not all religions are true. Only those who confess faith in Jesus are brought into the family of the King. Next week, we're going to talk about God's promise of identity. And why this matters is that as we begin to look at the promises... Here's what we've discovered. You don't have to earn God's promises. You can't pay for God's promises. You don't even have to fight to receive God's promises. They are yours in Jesus. Everybody say this word. Say, they are mine in Jesus. Say it. They are mine in Jesus. But you do have to fight to believe in them. You have to fight to actually trust God at His word. You have to fight against the lies of the enemy, against your own flesh, against the lies of culture. And what we're going to talk about this morning is I I have a feeling, because I count myself in this, one of the promises that I struggle to believe in the most is that I can find rest in Jesus. That I can find true rest through God. And I know the reason why I can say this is because when I look at my life, I tend to put my trust in resting in a whole bunch of other things other than in Jesus. We have to trust that God does want to bless us. You have to trust that God, that because of Jesus, you are forgiven through his perfect sacrifice, that it was more than enough. You have to trust that you are now wholly set apart for God and blameless because Jesus took the blame. You have to trust that Jesus is your only hope in this world and the next. You have to trust in Jesus' definition of freedom. Real Christian freedom is not the ability to do whatever you want, but the ability to not be controlled, driven, and mastered by every desire, impulse, and sin that wants you and me. And this morning, are you ready for this? This morning, I want to show you why the reason you might be so busy, so tired, anxious, stressed out, or bored are the result of this. You may not actually be stepping into God's promise for you today. That you may not actually trust God when He talks about rest. Now, I also want you to hear this. Satan doesn't want you to hear this message this morning. This morning, you will have a choice. Either believe what God's word says and trust him or continue to struggle. With all that being said, who's ready for the Holy Spirit to reveal some things this morning? If that's you, say amen. For God's word to speak into your life, your circumstances, your faith, and your soul, for the spirit to expose lies and reveal truth 
to break chains of bondage and set people free to do what God does best, be God. And if that's you this morning, would you stand with me and you're going to do a repeating prayer. It's a prayer of invitation for the Lord to move. Now, I want to warn you, what you are about to pray could be dangerous, especially if you actually mean these words. It's dangerous because it could lead to God breaking through in your life, in your marriage, in your family, through sin and through shame. And so with that being said, just repeat these words after me if you want God to do this in you. Father God, in Jesus' name, I reject the lies of the devil. I confess that I have placed my hope, my trust and freedom in the wrong things. So Holy Spirit, come. Come and move in me. Move my heart to love Jesus even more. Reveal in me striving. Uncover what has been hidden. Help me come out of hiding. Calm the worry and the busyness of my mind and my heart. Show me your glory and power. Help me rest in your power and presence, King Jesus. In your powerful name, everyone said, Amen. Now here's God's word for us this morning. This comes from two passages, Matthew eleven twenty-eight through 30 and Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. This is from the Message Bible. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Take my yoke upon you. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. And the prophet Isaiah writes, Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youth grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, and they will run and not grow faint. They will walk and not grow faint. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Growing up in the 90s, in the, I was in high school in the 90s. I graduated in 93. Any people graduate in 1990s? Anybody? Can I get a what, what? All right, apparently there's a few of you. There we go. When I was in high school, a lot of the focus in church, I came to faith in 1989, just about starting my freshman year of high school. And most of the focus of my high school youth group, as was many others, was on the dangers of the secular world around me. And the word secular just means not Christian, that's all. I had a few different youth pastors who to this day, I want you to hear this, I'm so incredibly grateful for the role they played in my life and faith. But I know because I've talked to many Christians who were also raised in the 90s that my experience is not limited to just my church. This was pretty common. Here's what I was taught. I was warned about the dangers of secular music, movies, and media. No kidding, I cannot tell you how many tapes, 
records and CDs that I burned, broke, or threw away. Anybody else ever do that when you were in high school? There were whole movements and conferences dedicated to getting rid of secular music because only Christian music was okay. I was warned of the evils of playing Dungeons and Dragons. I had friends who grew up not being able to watch the Smurfs or their undersea cousins, the Snorks. Anybody remember them? And then there was also the True Love Waits movement, which focused on God's desire to save your sexual purity until marriage, which then led to the purity culture movement with books like I Kiss Dating Goodbye, where good Christians didn't date, they courted. They didn't kiss or hold hands until their wedding day, all with the promise that if you do these things, you're going to have an amazing marriage, an amazing life. I was regularly told phrases like, Garbage in, garbage out. What you consume, put into your mind and heart, will ultimately come out in your life. Which, I want to be honest, I still believe these things hold some value and truth. And while there were several verses in the Bible that were taught us, they almost always seem to be focused on what I did. About the amount of effort and put that I put into my faith in Jesus. It was about, quite frankly my morality more than my relationship with Christ. And in the midst of all of this, all of this came from well-intended people. And I know this because when I was a youth pastor, I taught the same thing when I was a youth pastor. I wanted the best for my high school students. I wanted them to put their trust in Jesus. And so I taught the exact same things. I warned about the dangers of secular music. And, and the problem was this, is that there were some unintended consequences that came out from this movement. Now, there was incredible wisdom and truth in all of this. I mean, let's think about this for a second. It is true that what you put into your mind does affect your heart. The Bible's very clear on this. There is truth that there is some really garbage music, movies and media in the world. But that doesn't mean that all secular music, all non-Christian music is bad or all non-Christian movies are bad. No, but this is why the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians to focus our attention on whatever is true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, and admirable. God does indeed care about your body, soul, and mind. He actually does care about your sex and sexuality, which is why God does care about who you date and how you treat yours and other people's bodies. He also wants us to, be, uh, to stay away from partnering with demonic things, new age movements and witchcraft. We should stay away from these things as God's people. Though I'm pretty sure Dungeons and Dragons and Harry Potter probably weren't what the Apostle Paul had in mind. God does want us to be people who live in the light and not in the darkness. But all of this focus on morality, where everything was about my behavior led to some unintended consequences. Here are just a few of them. Now, as I look at these, this was my experience. I'm not saying this was everybody's, okay? This was partly my immaturity. I was new in my faith. I was a pretty broken kid. And so I didn't have a foundation to look through the lens of what what my youth pastor was trying to do. I simply took what was taught at face value, which was all about behavior modification. Now, here's the first unintended consequence. I began to see people as enemies, not as people to be loved. Jesus deeply loves broken people. He wants freedom for them. 
But what I saw was that if you weren't in my tribe, well, then you were my enemy. Well, that's not how God looks at broken and lost people, is it? I, I was so terrified because part of what I was taught was that non-Christians just want to drag you down into their sin and brokenness. And so every person I looked at, if they weren't in the church, if they weren't Christians, I immediately assumed they were bad people. Now, again, my immaturity. I want you to hear this. Did you know some of the most moral and nice people I know don't believe in Jesus? Some of the best people I know don't know Jesus. This was the first unintended consequence. I saw people as enemies. People wanted to drag me down. Now, here's what I want you to hear. Satan wants to drag you down. Satan hates what God is doing in your life. Satan is our enemy, not people. Amen? But there was another unintended consequence that I have to admit to myself. I started associating my faith and maturity in Jesus with faith in morality. That if I just was a more moral person, that's what made me good before the Lord. I placed my hope in my good behavior instead of the good news of Jesus. And I still have a tendency to want to do this, and I know some of you do here, and I know that because I'll ask some of you, hey, how do you know that you're secure in Christ? And usually this is the response that I'll get from many Christians. Well, I hope that when I get to heaven, I've lived a good enough life. Where does that come from? This whole idea of a good enough life comes because you've fallen into the trap of thinking that what saves you is your morality, not the good news of Jesus, not that what Jesus did. And what this led to was years of striving and working. And when I failed or when other people failed in their morality, it led to worry, anxiety, judgment, and legalism. Now, here's the crazy part. I've shared with many of you that when I was in high school, I was a jerk for Jesus. Like, I thought it was my job to save everybody. So I'd get in arguments and debates with non-Christians, and, and I'd criticize with the music they listened to, the things they did. And then I wondered that when I told them the gospel was good news, they didn't believe me. Well, the reason why they didn't believe me is all I told them was the bad news of you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. And then I was like, but hey, man, there's all kinds of freedom in Jesus. They looked at me like I was crazy because guess what? I wasn't preaching the gospel. I wasn't preaching the promise of God. I was preaching the promise of morality. Now, the reason why this is so important is because God does indeed want you to live holy, set-apart lives. But remember, God's Word is meant to shape and form us as a people who love, live, and act like King Jesus. We are supposed to be separate, but our hope is not in our morality. Our hope is in the Jesus who died for our sins. Amen? The good news of the gospel is not that, hey, now you can be good enough to get to heaven. The good news of the gospel is Jesus paid the price for your sins so you no longer have to strive. Well, but Jason, then why do I have to be a moral person? The reason why you change as a person is because the, the Lord works in you. When King Jesus is the model of your life, you begin to act and look like Jesus, not to be saved, but because you already are saved. God does a work in you, which led to a third unintended consequence. I thought 
that if I did all the things that my youth pastors promised me, that if I avoided all the wrong behaviors, avoided all the wrong people, avoided the wrong movies, listening to the wrong music, avoided dating the wrong people, specifically non-Christians, that this would give me freedom. Now, there was an even sadder consequence, if I'm honest, because I really missed out on some amazing music in the 90s. I could have seen Pearl Jam, Dave Matthews, Stone Temple Pilots, Lincoln Park live in concert, but because I thought that was all the devil music, Bobby Boucher, some of you get that reference, I actually missed out on great things because what I'd done is I'd kind of thrown the baby out with the bathwater. I missed out because I actually didn't understand freedom in Christ. All the rules and regulations, the legalism, the checklists of do's and don'ts created striving and insecurity in me. I have a feeling some of you today still struggle with striving and insecurity, which ultimately led to spiritual and physical exhaustion. Because without realizing it, I associated my faith with what I did instead of what Jesus did for me. I began to associate my faith with thinking that if I did the right things for God and for people, that's where I would find hope, which led to years of people-pleasing. And all of this came crashing down in my late 20s when I was a youth director in Minnesota. Peace Church in Egan, Minnesota, grateful for this church. I was 29 years old. Lisa and I had been married for maybe a year or so. And I want to tell you, our early years of marriage were really tough. They were very difficult. I had back-to-back weeks of travel for different mission trips. And now I had like 400 junior hires, a bunch of other churches staying at our church for a conference before we led to another conference And because I was the youth director, I had to sleep at the church. So here I am. I've just done back-to-back weeks of mission trips. I've got another week where I'm going to be gone. And I'm sleeping on the couch in my office because someone's got to be there at night for this. The guy who was speaking for our youth conference event comes into my office. It's the last night of this conference before we're about ready to take 400 junior hires and go to St. Olaf, Minnesota. And I'm talking with him, and all of a sudden, I feel this bubble burst in my chest. And I couldn't catch my breath. And he looked at me, and he could see something was wrong. And he asked me, he said, are you okay? And I said, man, I don't feel right. I, I feel off. I, I, maybe I'm just tired. It's been long. We've been staying up till 2 o'clock every morning, getting up at 5 with junior hires. And I said, I think I just need to go to bed. And so he left, and I laid down on my couch And I'm laying there and I'm watching and every breath, it's almost like I can see the ceiling coming down on me and I can't catch my breath. And so I made uh, the wisest decision I ever did. I went to Google MD, by the way, WebMD, that was awesome, 2004. And here's what it told me. If you have four or more of these symptoms, you're having a heart attack, go to the emergency room. I'm 29 years old. So I call my wife, who was at home, sound asleep. It's 1.32 in the morning. I call her. She picks up. And I said, hey, babe, I don't want you to worry. I think I might be having a heart attack. I'm going to have our intern drive me to the hospital because I didn't want to freak people out with an ambulance. And this was her response. Okay, see you in the morning. And then she hung up. (laughs) 
And so I call one of my interns, her name's Nikki, and I go, Nikki, I still can't breathe. I'm like, I got to go to the emergency room. I think I'm having a heart attack. We get to the emergency room. It's like two in the morning. And obviously Lisa showed up. She finally woke up and realized what I said. And I'm sitting here and I'm doing all the EKGs and I still can't breathe and my chest is still tight. And I'm, I'm like, I'm worried. I'm going to go be with Jesus at 29 years old. Now, I never met my biological father. I don't know my family history. So I'm like, I don't know what's going on. Now, here's the thing. Have you ever been to a late night doctor? Their bedside manners are not always the best. So he comes up to me and he goes, dude, what makes you think you're having a heart attack? I'm like, I can't, catch, I can't catch my breath. My chest hurts. And he goes, man, you're fine. It's just a panic attack. Just a panic attack. He goes, you're fine. Totally dismiss me. I go back. He's like, you need to take some rest. I talked to a friend of mine who struggled with panic attack for years. Anybody here willing to admit you've ever had a panic attack? It's scary as all get out, isn't it? And I talked to my friend and I was so embarrassed I was embarrassed by the fact that I had a panic attack because I'm a strong 29-year-old. I don't have anxiety. And this is what he said. He goes, Jason, your body has this interesting thing, and it's part of how God created you. Either you will get rest or your body will force you to get rest. See, what led to this was because that lie of performance, of people-pleasing, of always striving to do more, whether it be more in my faith, morally, trying to always earn something led to exhaustion at a physical, spiritual level. Now, I'm not going to blame my youth pastors for this. This came on because, let's be honest, this is taught everywhere. In American culture, what we're taught is busyness is next to godliness. That the goal in life... If I were to go to 99% of you and say, how you're doing, what's the word that most people immediately say? Busy. It's a, it's a gut response. How's it going? I'm busy. As if I'm not busy or you're not busy. Busyness seems to be the way in which we measure success in our culture, including in the church. It's measured throughout our businesses, throughout our week. It's the reason why we wear busyness as a badge of honors. I, at one point, I had a pastor who I've heard say this to other people. I had a pastor who said, I like to work my staff like dogs. Let's think about that statement for a second. What that essentially tells people is that they're not worthy of dignity or care. They're just objects to be used. And yet, here's the thing. You know how many pastors and leaders in church and volunteers and people in businesses who have fallen into the trap of thinking this lie of busyness defines you? And yet, I'll tell you, it's not what God intended. How do I know that? Well, when we read the book of Genesis, did you know that the first two chapters of the Bible set the framework for the entire rest of Scripture? The first chapter of the Bible, over six days, it says God works. Now, let's be clear. God could have created the universe by the, just thinking it at all kind of in. He does six days, and, and that's a whole different conversation why. But each day he's resting on the sixth day, he creates Adam, and he breathes in. And he says, Adam, you've got a task. I've got a job for you. Your job is to go forth, multiply, and, and basically fill the earth, subdue the earth, manage this creation. I created you to do work. But now check this out. You ready for this? 
At the end of each day, God says these words. What he created after he finished working, it was good. Everybody say good. In Hebrew, the word is tov. At the end of each day, it's good. But on the seventh day, on the seventh day, God takes a break after he sits, he says all that he's done, and it says it's very good. And then it says God rested. Now, God didn't need to rest. What does this mean? He then says these words. God made the seventh day the Sabbath and declared it holy. See, work is good. Sabbath is holy. Work is good. There will be work in heaven. It will just be work without toil. We won't struggle to create. We'll create and it'll just happen. And we'll we'll still have jobs in heaven. I don't know what they're going to be. But rest, as God defines it, Sabbath rest is holy. Human culture elevates work as holy and rest as lazy. That's how humanity sets it up, isn't it? They'll say, work is holy, your your work is holy. No, work is good. Rest in God is holy. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Did you catch that? God declare work good, but rest holy. We praise a work ethic, but God praises a rest ethic. Did you catch that? God praises a rest ethic, but there's a type of rest because as humans, we tend to take what is good and make it ultimate. We've elevated work from good to holy. We've elevated work to be supreme in our life, but it was not created that way. And that work isn't just about a job. We put so much of our hope and our ability to work. What was I being taught in high school? What did I teach my high schoolers? I taught them a different philosophy of work, which was this. You need to work to be good enough for God. You need to work. That's all morality is. When you trust in morality for salvation, what you're saying is you can work for God's goodness and holiness and salvation. And this is not the gospel. If you've struggled like I do with people-pleasing, I find myself often exhausted by trying to make everyone around me happy. Anybody else ever feel that way? It's exhausting to always worry about, do people like you? Are people satisfied with you? I've tried to earn people's favor and I've tried to earn God's favor. And so what happens? I end up moving and my work is no longer just about a job. Work consumes every aspect of my life. Now, when I, you ask most people how they're doing again, their response is, I'm busy. The reason why they say that is because what we've done is we think that busyness defines us. That if I'm busy, I must be doing something worthwhile. Mark Buchanan, who's a writer, wrote these words. We live in a culture where busyness is a fetish and stillness is laziness, rest is sloth. Now, I think there are three lies people believe about rest, and I want to share these, and I have a feeling you believe in one, if not all, of these lies. Some of you resist rest. You say things like, we can rest tomorrow, there's too much to be done today, I'll rest when I'm dead. There's too much fun, too many experiences to have rest. There's so much to do out there, how can I take a break? Others of you, you believe rest is lazy or weak. You don't need rest, so you resist rest. Some of you fear rest. 
How can you rest? Because everything rests on you. If I rest, the world will fall apart. The chores won't get done. My business will fail. Farming will fail. Everything around me depends on me. Some of you fear rest because if you do rest, you're afraid that you'll look lazy. That's called people-pleasing, by the way. Others of you, if you rest, everything will collapse. And then lastly, some of you redefine rest. You define rest as escapism. You think rest is watching Netflix or playing video games or doing a hobby. Some of you think rest is retreating inward. And so what do you do? Well, Jason, I'm really good at rest. I love journaling. And so what do you do is you rest by going inside of yourself. And then others of you think rest simply means isolation. You think that resting is because you're not around people. Just like hope and freedom, we need God's vision for rest in our lives, God's promise of rest for your life. I want to finish the rest of the quote from Mark Buchanan. He says this, but without rest, you miss the rest of God. Not resting in God, you actually miss who God is if you do not learn to rest. The rest that God invites you to enter into more fully so that you might know him more deeply. God wants you to learn to rest the right way so you might know him more. Jesus invited you and me into a different kind of rest, one that is only found in him, and it's one in which he calls us to be yoked to him. And I'll explain what a yoke is in a minute. This is why when we read Matthew Jesus invites you to this rest. Are you tired, worn out, burnt out on religion? Anybody here burnt out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Take my yoke upon you. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. You, you probably know this, but a yoke is not an egg yoke. A yoke was a wooden beam, a harness that farmers would place on an oxen or a donkey or a horse. Now, there were different kinds of yokes. And they would do this because attached to the side of the yoke were, would either be chains or rope, and they would pull a yoke. They would pull a weight. Maybe it was a, a tractor of sorts or a pulley system, whatever it might be. And now you had a single yoke, which just had one hole for the ox neck to go through, but then there was also what was called the double neck yoke. And what farmers would do is they would take a younger, immature, and inexperienced oxen, and they would yoke him to a stronger, more mature ox. And the reason why they did this is that the young ox thinks that the real goal is just to be strong. And so they go full bore nonstop and they're immature. So they don't, stay, they don't stay on the line and they want to do their own thing. But the older, more mature ox is not weaker. He's actually stronger because he's learned to pace himself. Jesus is saying this. Jesus is our mature ox. Jesus says, come and be yoked to me. Let me be the one who does the pulling. I'm going to teach you how to rest, how to do this life well. When he says, take my yoke upon you, what he's really inviting you to is to learn his rhythms, how he moves, how he goes about life. And it's now what's clear on this. 
He doesn't say that there's no burden. He doesn't say that there's no yoke. No, there is a burden, but it's light. Why is it light? Because who does all the heavy lifting? Jesus. Jesus is the one who does the heavy lifting. No longer do you have to strive for moral perfection. Now you strive to know him. And guess what happens as you get to know Jesus? The Holy Spirit does the work in you and you begin to look like Jesus. You begin to care about the things Jesus cares about. Now, let's be clear again. It's absolutely wise to not date someone who's not a Christian. It's absolutely wise to, be, to think about the decisions that you make garbage in, garbage out. But you don't do these things to earn salvation. You do them because Jesus is far more attractive and better than any of those things. But what does this have to do with rest? Well, anytime you read a name, I shared this last week, anytime you read a name, an event, or a reference, something in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, we have to go back and ask the question, what does it mean to rest in God? Well, this brings us all the way back to Genesis. See, God's definition of rest is different than ours. God's definition of rest is not escaping. It's resting in Him. When we take the yoke of Jesus on our life and we put our hope in Him, it does not mean that we stop working. Rather, it means we let Him define our work. We let Him define who we are. Jesus wants to give you rest. He wants to teach you how to rest in God. Why? Because remember, work is good, but rest is, say it with me, holy. Here's where God's promise of rest is so incredibly difficult for you and I to believe. This is why I started off that we believe the Bible matters, that we have to read God's word, not because it's God, but because it's how God reveals his heart. It's how God speaks to us. It is the primary method in which God created us to understand his will for our lives and for the world. God knows how difficult it is for you and I to trust and rest in him. He actually made it one of the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment is right up there with no other gods. You don't make idols, no murdering, no stealing or coveting, dishonoring your parents, no cheating, all of these things. And in the midst of that, the fourth covenant, God declared the Sabbath holy. Rest became a moral imperative in God's kingdom. God, however, sets the standard for rest through a word called Sabbath. Everybody say Sabbath. Now, Sabbath is not a word that we use unless you like 70s and 80s rock. Black Sabbath is not what I'm talking about. Sabbath or Shabbat actually is a Hebrew word which means to rest fully. Another word that we use that gets translated is to fully abide in. God sets the standard for rest through this thing called the Sabbath. Sabbath is not like human rest. Human rest is equal to taking a day off. But come on, let me ask you, on your day off, what do you typically do? Do you clean your house? Do you do chores? Do you hop from youth traveling sport event to next youth traveling sport event? Do you binge watch Netflix? Bible teacher Jen Wilkin wrote this, our modern conception of Sabbath is often little more than taking a day off for the purpose of relaxing. But true Sabbath rest is set apart as holy. It is intended for worship as much as for well-being. The fourth word does more than tell us to relax or getting enough sleep. It means to cease. 
I'm going to invite the worship team back out. Here's what I want to challenge us with this morning. See, what we're learning to do is to cease activity and striving for the purpose of remembering God's provision, that we might worship Him as we ought. Being well-rested and taking care of ourselves are good things, but they are best, at best, taking a day off, Taking a day off without putting God in mind is at best a thin obedience to the fourth command. To be yoked to Jesus is to be bound, tied to him, and to the promise of rest found only in him. It is escaping human wisdom. When we take a Sabbath rest, it means our object of rest is not found in ourselves. It's not found in our chores. It's actually found by being with Jesus. And so here's what happens. Human wisdom plays into those three lies. The lies that tell you that you must resist rest because rest is for the week or for the future or after I've had all my fun. You must fear rest or look lazy having things fall apart or let the world down. Or you redefine rest as taking naps, escapism, or looking inward. The world tells you that you must must rest from work, but God tells you that you work from your rest. Check this out. I've shared multiple times over the last several series how God has physically wired our bodies to reflect our spirituality. How many of you go to the gym regularly to work out? Raise your hand. Did you know that you actually don't build muscle in the gym? Did you know that? When you're lifting weights, when you're bench pressing, doing bicep curls, doing all those things, you're actually working and you're breaking down the muscle. You want to know where muscle builds? In your rest. It's in the rest that your body gets stronger, that muscle develops. You still have to go to the gym. Somebody told me, like, Jason, I love to sleep all the time. I should be buff. No, because if you don't do the work, you're missing out on where God comes in. So what happens is this. When we come to Sabbath with the Lord, at the heart of Sabbath is worship. You must set aside time in your Sabbath to direct it towards God. This doesn't mean that you can't go golfing. It doesn't mean that you can't do things. But too many of us actually don't Sabbath with with the Lord. What we end up doing is just taking a break, including taking a break from God. Sabbath reminds us that real worship is found in Jesus. Real rest is found in Jesus. So I'm going to leave you with a challenge. Will you stand with me? Here's the challenge I want to give you. As you're getting ready to partake in the Lion's Barbecue and all the good food here, how many of you feel like you can't breathe? Raise your hand. If you feel like life is too busy, you struggle to just catch a breath. You're like, Jason, I just need a moment. Breath comes from the Holy Spirit who is the breath of God in our lives. Sabbath is not trusting in yourself, it's trusting in God's provision. Sabbath is letting God be the focus, the object. It is taking time to worship, to have conversation, to laugh, to be with God. Now, this next year, we're going to do a whole series on Sabbath rest because I'm just touching the iceberg. My primary point for this morning is this. Too many of us don't actually know how to rest. Too many of us don't understand God's promise of rest. And so we feel like we have to take rest into our own hands, which is why we either resist, we either fear, or we either redefine. 
And what God says is, no, let me be your holy rest. One day, we will find that God will bring ultimate rest when he brings heaven back to earth, when Jesus returns. We don't know when that's going to happen. Until then, work is good, but rest is holy. If you need rest this morning, I want to give you two simple steps. First, find time throughout your day to just pay attention to the Lord. Literally, take, it can be 30 seconds and take a deep breath. Actually, let's try it right now. Do me a favor. I want you to breathe in, go. And I want you to think about Jesus for one, just five seconds. Think about Jesus. Breathe out. Take time throughout your day, especially when it's chaotic, and breathe in the goodness of God. Take a breath physically. Second, this matters. The reason why we're here is because we're acknowledging that God is worthy of our worship. God uses our worship. When you come to worship Jesus here, are you expecting a refilling, a renewing, a refueling of God's presence in your life? Or are you simply doing a religious duty? This can be an opportunity to rest in the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? Let's close with this worship song. God is good all the time. Amen? Let's worship.